Welcome to Trust Tree Talks, a podcast that's committed to telling the extraordinary stories found in every woman. We're your hosts, Lisa Schauer and Elizabeth Holmes. Thanks for tuning in. We're so glad you're here. This season, we're talking about change and how we can respond to the challenges and opportunities that come with change. And today, we're thrilled to have as our guest, Lacey Pittman, who leads operations and air safety at Amazon Air. She's here to talk with us about her journey and navigating both personal and professional changes. In her role at Amazon Air, she is responsible for the vision and leadership of aviation operations and safety for the global Amazon Air network. She provides leadership for the Network Control Center and is implementing a safety management system at Amazon Air. Previously, she was Managing Director of the Operations Control Center at Horizon Air and a captain. She provided leadership to the OCC while maximizing revenue, aircraft utilization, and developing and implementing strategic initiatives and procedures for the airline operation. Prior to that role, Lacey was the Managing Director of Safety at Horizon Air, in which she was responsible for all safety programs, including implementing the safety management system. Lacey joined Horizon in 2003 as a Q200 first officer. Three years later, she was named one of the company's assistant chief pilots, and in April 2012, she was promoted to director of safety. She maintained her qualifications as a Q400 captain throughout her time at Horizon. Prior to her roles within Amazon Air and Horizon Air, Lacey worked for AirServe International, a not-for-profit humanitarian aviation organization providing aid and relief around the world. She flew a King Air 200 into refugee camps along the war-torn regions of West Africa. And she'll tell us some stories about her time in Africa in this episode. Lacey met her husband, Sean Pittman, while he was serving in the United States Marine Corps in Africa. And together they're raising their three daughters, Sahara, Kira, and Amelia. We met Lacey in 2018, and we have loved hearing about her career path, her passions, and her leadership approach. I was reflecting on when we did last get the opportunity to talk with you, and it was actually April of 2019. So you'd kind of just gone through some of that transition. But we were so excited about the opportunity to talk to you that we spent a lot of time kind of understanding your journey and, um, you know, how you chose to be, a, you know, commercial pilot. And, you know, I think we focused more there, but I was a little curious and it might just be kind of my lens in my moment right now in terms of the move that we've made. And, and it's significant. I mean, it's not to be uh, underestimated how everyone adapts differently. And so I'm just kind of curious what, how you all settled in because then we ran into COVID. So, I mean, you hadn't been up there a long time before COVID happened. When we moved up here and then I changed uh, to different organizations, I was commuting then into work instead of, you know, picking the location for our house to be close to SeaTac Airport. I, after we made the move into our house, changed organizations, which then my commute was even longer. If I had known I was going to do that, we would not have moved as far out as we as we did. Um, so then I needed to figure out, okay, what's that length of commute going to look like from where we're living to downtown Seattle now to be with Amazon? So it was an hour and 20 minutes. I took the train every day for a year. So it was nice. I could take the Sounder train in and then I was able to take it, it back home as well. So that, you know, that made, um, you know, just the, you know, just having that public transportation available was super nice. And then 
you know, with the kids, they transition into their schools. Of course, being mom, as soon as we moved up here, I started signing my kids up for all the same stuff. And then just to get them to make it seem as you know, feel like home. And like, if they were on soccer, I got them signed up in soccer. And I found some of that actually kind of like backfired because it wasn't their same teams, you know, it wasn't the camaraderie. And, and so they actually, um, my oldest daughter ended up changing her sport altogether. She uh, decided to just stop playing soccer, which was slightly devastating for me because she was awesome at it. And then she went and did volleyball and she's doing awesome at that. And so They really had to find, you know, kind of rediscover themselves in a new location. And some of that opened up new doors and it was kind of fun and it brought us into new directions. And personally, I mean, I would rather sit inside in a gym than outside in the rain. uh, (laughs) That was fine with me. (laughs) Yeah. And then Sean, you know, my husband, he was, you know, just for his transition. He had worked there at Skyview High School for 15 years or so. And then when we moved up here, we really talked about planning ahead of time what that transition was going to look like. So he was going to just take the full six months and be dad and make sure that our kids, you know, got to school and back each day and then new bus and, you know, really became plugged in at the schools. And at the same time, I was learning this whole other organization, which was all consuming. And then it worked out so nicely that we didn't have to juggle two schedules and we had the means to be able to just have one working parent. Uh, he, he stayed doing that. And so he's been dad for two and a half years, stay at home dad and doing an awesome job at it. And I don't know what we would do if, if he wasn't doing that, you know, it's, we're certainly lucky to be in that position. So we all kind of adjusted our routines. What's that been like for you? in terms of new job, big job, big organization, um, learning that, also wanting to make sure, I mean, you mentioned you signed up the kids for all the activities, but then you probably can't go to all those activities um, and, you know, get them from one place to the next. So how has that transition been for you? Yeah, you know, the transition in terms of you know, from one job to another, the amount of work or the work itself, um, you know, when you enjoy something, you're just all in. And so I was all in at my last work and I would say I'm all in at this work. And the difference has really been for me, just the travel time. And so with the travel time, I'm gone more. And so um, I would say just the transition from one organization to another, I can talk about that. But in terms of if that, you know, showed in any other aspects, like in terms of home or being gone more, I think that it just was able to balance out because Sean was then available and able to do a lot of the family things like the shopping and the cooking and running kids to where they needed to go. Um, The transition from one organization to another, that was really new to me. I mean, I had been at Horizon Air for 16 years and I was familiar. I had done basically been in three different divisions. I was in flight operations and then I was in safety and then I was in overall operations. And so I knew that space and I was comfortable with it. And um, I could easily transition from 
uh, one team to the next team and then to the next team. And the way I could easily transition is the way I approached each of those is that I made sure that I first understood the culture of the team what are the current dynamics? What are the current projects? And then really after fully meeting and understanding uh, the team and its current state, could I really begin to set like the long-term vision and our mission in order to get people engaged and excited about where we're going to take the organization in the future. And so I used those same principles when I actually moved organizations because it had worked well in moving divisions. And then when I was able to uh, go over to Amazon, that really was a dive into a whole different culture. So I was glad that I had had the experience of that uh, previously on a smaller scale. And then really going from something that was an airline to then going to a e-commerce tech company, um, I was able to first understand the culture and what is the history, because really understanding that history can really help you know, okay, where are we today as an organization before you as a leader can really set the vision for where we're going in the future. And so I was able to apply that and get to know the team at Amazon Air. And then the cool thing was, is I was able to build a team. There were some small teams that I had, but I was really able to expand them and grow them at scale. And so just in the last two and a half years, we have more than doubled, actually tripled in size for the Amazon Air organization. And so we're now the size of a smaller airline uh, in some ways. I would say a smaller major airline. So that means, you know, we're, we're about 10,000 people strong. And that's about triple where we were when I joined two and a half years ago. So that's, that's pretty cool to be a part of such a, you know, growing and scaling organization. That is a phenomenal growth rate. That's... Yes. Wow. (laughs) And I know the last time we talked to you, you touched a little bit on your leadership style of like the servant leadership style. Can you just kind of expand on that? I haven't heard very many people in the business space talk about that as their leadership style. That really just stuck with me as a unique and really effective way to lead people. So have you evolved that? Is that something you're still... At Amazon Air, I'm, you know, I mentioned I'm responsible for operations. And so for operations for our global air network, it's 767s and 737 aircraft. And we have a flight schedule of more than 6,000 flights a month. We have 115 aircraft approaching 10,000 people on the team and 55 global airports. And then at the same time as the operation side, I'm also responsible for safety. And so on the safety side, I'm implementing a safety management system across the global network. And really what that means is it's a system designed to make us safer through proactive and predictive reporting and really fostering a positive safety culture. And so with Amazon Air being a part of that larger global supply chain, I would say we really have this community. And it's a community of people that I get to work with every single day. And it's a part of that global community where I think about leadership. And so how do I operate in and within that space? And so, you know, in terms of my leadership philosophy, I think about it in terms of thinking big. And so I think I've talked before about it, like you have to dream big. Was the same idea in leadership as as thinking big. And at the same time, 
you can think big, but you also have to be able to deliver. And sometimes that being able to deliver is to have this relentless pursuit of tenacity that requires building a network of support. And then I always balance that with a passion for people. And so a passion for people is what I've talked about in terms of, you know, where I really started my career. And that was in humanitarian aviation. I had a passion for people and a love of aviation. And so how do I bring those things together? And at the beginning of my career, that was really um, how I got involved in humanitarian aviation. And then as I've gone throughout my career, I've never lost that perspective of it being all about the people. And if that's the team I'm on, if that's the people that I'm supporting, if that's the people I'm mentoring or coaching or working with day in, day out, and in this case, throughout the global supply chain in this big global company, you know, as long as I make sure that, yes, you 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 think big, you dream big, you have this uh, relentless pursuit that requires tenacity and then at the same time balancing that with people. Let's talk a little bit about your humanitarian. Let's talk a little bit about your origin story. Now you got your pilot's license before you got your driver's license. If we go all the way back, is that correct? Yeah. I started flying before we let kids drive. I don't know why the law is that way, but I was 16 years old when I soloed, so flew an airplane by myself. And then I needed to wait for birthdays. So I had my private pilot license there at 16, my instrument at 17, my commercial at 18. I had my multi-engine um, certificate when I was 19. And then I had to wait a long time to get my airline transport pilot license as, at the young age of my early 20s, you know. So I started young. I started right there in Vancouver, Washington, um, right there at Pearson Airfield. And when I was going to high school at Columbia River High School, a flight instructor from Pearson came to the career center at Columbia River. And he offered $20 introductory flight coupons. And I always remember that. I still remember the day that he came in because I just was so excited. I had $20 from babysitting. And so that's how when I, my, my dad had to drive me to the airport because, again, I, I couldn't drive. And uh, you drove me to the airport and I took that flying lesson, paid for it with my own money. Of course, I loved it. And I had asked, you know, my parents, hey, can I please start taking flying lessons? And one of the best life lessons they gave me is, yes, you can, but you have to pay for it. And so that's how I got involved in flying in the first place. And the reason why I remember that even today and why I remember that moment is because even now as a leader today, I reflect on how taking an interest in our youth at a certain age, especially when it comes to STEM, is so important and pivotal. And so that flight instructor walking in on that day when I was in the class and encouraging a young female to pursue a career in STEM uh, was life-changing for me. And so I have carried that into my leadership today and make sure that um, 
we are continuing to encourage our youth to pursue uh, STEM careers and especially young women. I'm a mom of three daughters, so that's really near and dear to my heart. And so I want to make sure that um, the kids who have that love of math and engineering and science, that that just doesn't go away and we can continue to ignite that spark. So you moved on, got your pilot's license, all your steps, and then you ended up after college in Africa, in West Africa. Is that correct? That's correct. I was invited to visit my roommate from university. She grown up in West Africa. And when we graduated, she invited me and a couple other of our roommates to come and visit her. I was the only one that said yes, because I paid for my own school all on my own. And and I got to say, I paid for school and I paid for flying lessons along the way because I was a maid at a, like a housekeeper at a hotel. Those of you that have been in the Vancouver area a long time, I was the housekeeper at the Ferryman's Inn right there on 78th Street. So that's how, you know, that, that kind of work actually helped, <laughs> really, yeah. helped me get to uh, go to university. You know, so after graduating, I didn't have a lot of money to be able to just go visit my friend out in Africa. But because of graduation, you know, you have $5 here and $10 here. And so I was able to scrape that together, go uh, visit her. I first took a train from Vancouver, Canada to Edmonton, Alberta, where then I uh, flew with her from Edmonton. Edmonton to Abidjan, Ivory Coast. And then we, her parents picked us up and we drove for like five to seven days across all of West Africa. So across Ivory Coast and all of Guinea, staying at these places throughout the rainforest country that was so remote and so beautiful. I fell in love with the continent right away. And then we finally arrived in Conakry, Guinea, and that ended up being my future home. It's the capital of Guinea. And then while I was there visiting her, it is about networking. And so even as a college graduate, I was able to meet people that were doing the flying there. And I saw that the humanitarian flying that they were doing was a combination of that love of aviation and that passion for people I talked about. So that was the introduction to humanitarian aviation. And I knew that I always wanted to fly airplanes in order to help people. And so it was was ended up through that organization that I became a humanitarian pilot. And then when I was asked to come and and work for them shortly after that, I was able to use the means of the aircraft to transport food and water to communities that needed it most. And I flew in medical physicians and nurses to provide aid when hospitals were otherwise sometimes a two or three day journey via truck or jeep. And really, I was able to use the aircraft to fly in workers to respond to humanitarian crises and set up safe and secure refugee camps because I flew on a contract with the UNHCR. That's the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. And I flew in even things like computers uh, where an analyst. So when people make it to the camps and they register at the camps, we could reunite families and then we could fly people to be reunited with their families once they were located. So that was the initial trip out to go visit my friend that led into the beginning of a, a wonderful career beginning with humanitarian aviation. 
You've talked a little bit about some of your humanitarian missions that you've flown, and they continue to touch my heart. And I know that Elizabeth and I have both kind of talked about some of those stories that you've shared. We'd love to hear a little bit from you about, you know, what was something that impacted you in terms of um, those flights that you were doing? I mean, every flight had meaning, but there were probably a few that forever touched your heart as well. Since flying in Africa, whatever leadership role I've had the privilege to hold, I always remember that at the end of the day, it's about making a difference in the lives of someone. And it may be a coworker, it may be someone on my team who needs help removing a barrier. It may be offering my time to mentor someone on their own journey. But whatever it is, I'm reminded that our role as leaders is to remember that life is precious. And no matter what we do or say, it's about the people that surround us. And so as I think about my time in Africa, I have never been reminded so clearly of keeping life in perspective and the value of our teams and those who we serve on board, even an airplane. I was about to fly out of the heart of the rainforest one day. I had been radioed to medically evacuate a group of uh, Sierra Leonean refugees, and that included an amputee victim, a woman who had lived her entire life among a village in the rainforest, had had her hand and half her arm cut off by rebel soldiers. And she was being boarded on my airplane in order to fly her to the local hospital. And so when she boarded, I needed to lean over her to fasten her seatbelt. And when I did that, of course, our eyes locked. We, she, our, eyes, our eyes met and I, I didn't know her language. I couldn't talk to her in her language and she didn't know mine. And yet we communicated for sure to each other. And I will always remember that moment. Um, She knew that I had traveled far to enter her world, uh, far different from my own. Uh, She knew I had come to help just her. And I could see that she had uh, fear in her eyes when she was boarding that airplane and she had just become an amputee victim and had obviously been through quite an ordeal. But I was there to fly her to the hospital and so she could find comfort in in my eyes, I, I hope, when I was looking at her. And um, I think that we both began to weep and I knew she was thankful that I was there to fly her to the hospital. And and then I do believe that as she saw the tears in my own eyes, that she could see compassion that transcends any any language. And so it was after that moment of time standing still that we knew we needed each other. Uh, she knew that I came to help save her life through this type of flying. And she definitely reminded me how precious life can be. That's an amazing story. (laughs) It still brings tears to my eyes to hear you tell that story. It's so meaningful. And um, the work that you have done and that you continue to do just matters so much. 
Thank you for sharing that. Thank you, Lisa. So you're in Africa and you've got dangerous missions, you've got scary missions, you've got probably, I imagine, some fun missions. And at what point does Horizon Air start to look like an option for you? (laughs) I was in West Africa in the early 2000s. And this was before mobile connectivity, uh, wireless connectivity was was, uh, as possible as it is today. And so I was over there. I met Sean, uh, my, and he and got engaged to Sean in West Africa. We were planning to be married, and he had was serving an enlistment with the Marine Corps as a Marine security guard guarding U.S. embassies, and his enlistment was coming to an end. And so we really were looking at coming home at that point. And when you live overseas, home is anywhere in the United States for us. That's what it was for us. Even though I'm from Vancouver, Washington, it really was anywhere in the U.S. My brother, actually, my younger brother had uh, sent me an email and I was able to receive the email. So that's the first miracle. Um, And he said, if you're ever thinking about coming home, I know somebody that works at an airline and I could, you know, send them your contact information. And so again, uh, the ability to Google and search at that time was very difficult. So, or maybe I just didn't do it. And uh, so I had this email address and I emailed this person my resume and I said, I understand you work at an airline. I'm interested. This is the flying I'm doing right now. I'm interested in coming home and, you know, could you help me please try to submit this for application somewhere with your airline? And I got an email back right away. And the email said, Lacey, absolutely. What wonderful work you're doing there in West Africa. We would love to have you at Horizon Air. I've copied our chief pilot on this email, you know, signed, you know, Jeff Pinio, president of Horizon Air. And I thought, well, that's great and embarrassing. I would have liked to have known I was writing the president of Horizon (laughs) Air, but he was so gracious and gave my application to the chief pilot and I got a job interview. And so I actually left Africa three days before my fiance uh, had his plane ticket. You know, it just happened to be that this airline, you know, and it's based in Portland, Oregon. So I home to me that was going to be the United States. I'm now headed back to PDX and I got a job interview and I uh, was hired at Horizon Air. And it was that night where uh, Sean called from Africa and asked about the, the job. And I was able to tell him, yes, I, I, I did get the job. And we were so excited. And then he asked if I turned on the news and I had not had time to turn on the news. And um, that was the year and the month that um, there was the conflict in Iraq. And the stop loss went into effect like that day. And so anybody due to get out could not get out and they were in to to serve our country. And so Sean did that, of course, and did it wonderfully. And so I thought I was going to see him three days later and I saw him something like uh, six months later, nine months later, something like that. And so that was my introduction to Horizon Air and uh, where I was able to have a fantastic career there doing different roles. Now, if I remember correctly, different roles, including chief pilot? Right, including base chief pilot. So I was 
responsible. At, at first, I was hired to be a line pilot on the Bombardier Dash 8 200. And so I was a line pilot. And after doing a lot of this kind of crazy flying in West Africa to come and then just like do these regular flights was a little bit uh, boring. And I knew that I needed to be involved and do something else. And so I actually started out and like writing pilot procedures. I, I started, you know, I got responsibility to write procedures that all the pilot procedures for how we operate the Dash 8 200. And then I joined the pilot hiring team where I did all of the technical evaluation, simulator evaluations for candidates wanting to come to Horizon. And then I was asked to join the chief pilot's office and become an assistant chief pilot based out of there in Portland, where I was responsible for about 500 of the Horizon pilots. And then from there, I did that for six years. And then I was asked to go and lead the safety team, the safety division, or reported directly to the president, uh, the next president of Horizon Air. And so as a part of that safety role, I created a new safety management system that was required by the FAA for all airlines to comply with. So I was able to basically change the way that we thought about risk within the organization and the way we manage risk within the organization. And so uh, once I kind of put a bow on that and that project was done, um, then the next president actually asked me to lead our system operations control center. So that's the team of people that sit in a dark room with a bunch of computer screens and monitor the weather and they dispatch flights and they're, you know, doing the maintenance control. So if there's any issues out on any of the flights, those calls come in um, in terms of for maintenance and there's crew scheduling and crew planning and crew pay, these different teams that are a part of the operations center. And so even just mentioning that, you know, I can share with you guys that, you know, I'm reminded of a time, it was 2018. So I think it was maybe just before I talked uh, with you all at uh, the beginning of 2019, and I was managing director of Horizons SOC, the um, System Operations Center. And it was a Friday evening, and I had just gotten home from work. Uh, my sister came over to the house there in Vancouver, Washington, and with her kids, and my phone rang. And at that time, I was informed that one of our airplanes had potentially just been hijacked by a mechanic at the airport. And let me pause here. It's important to understand that during an emergency of any kind, often the first information you hear is not always accurate. And so in this case, I quickly delegated parent responsibility to my sister as I didn't know how many days, you know, with this call, I would actually be gone. I jumped in my car, left for the airport, never losing connection with that caller on my phone. And that was the call from my team in the SOC, these people that take the calls in. So it was that first notification into the airline that this that something had happened. And as I drove to the airport, I did learn that it was not a mechanic or a hijacking, but a, a ramp agent had stolen one of the Q400s on the ramp in Seattle and departed the airport. And so when I arrived at system operations control, my team was doing exactly what they had been trained to do. I mean, we had trained for emergency events. We had never trained for 
this type of an emergency event, but they were doing exactly what they had been trained to do. They were people doing their job well under the most stressful of circumstances. And there really was a life and death situation that was unfolding as we spoke. And uh, they were professionals, and I couldn't have been more proud of the team. And that role and that experience was one of the, the last experiences before, you know, then I moved over to another organization. And I just look back on that, and I just feel like so proud of that team that could be in such a unsettling circumstance and set all of that aside and just do everything they could to help in a situation and remembering their procedures. And so I've taken that with me. And so as I've gone to the global organizations and I have a different operations control center type of a team, making sure that, um, you know, they're always prepared for, you know, any event that could happen at any time. I was in SeaTac that day. When that occurred. And so being someone that was there flying, you know, because I was, I did quite a bit of back and forth between Portland and Seattle. It was communicated. So I'm also uh, very uh, uh, keen to pay attention to how communications on crises are managed really well. I mean, it was, it was very well done um, given the news was playing out, you know, what was happening and and shooting footage of what was going on. Being a person who was about ready to get on Alaska Airlines flight, I felt like I actually had quite a bit of information that that was fairly reflective of what we were seeing play out on the TV set. But I can't imagine running that crisis with a team to figure out how to get it solved. So just tremendous work. So (laughs) well done. Yeah, you know, and that's where it does, you know, continue to always go back to the people. And there were multiple teams that were involved, of course, you know, everybody sets aside whatever they were doing or working on and works the crisis at hand. And that's where it does come back to the, you know, to the people. And then afterward, you know, the care, you know, as you, you know, and even as a part of the debriefs and, and how to, you know, after an event, what does that leading look like and, and care and love of the people and the team after that? So anyway, I, I it's one of those things where you develop emergency procedures and you hope you never have to use them. But in the times that you do, you're glad that you had drilled and prepared accordingly. Hearing your story, you seek out challenges. Like I can hear that And you're so cool under pressure. Like you seek out these positions where you're going to be really challenged and then rise to that challenge. Like, do you have some practice where you bring yourself to center? Are you just wired to be cool under pressure? That's a good question. I am cool under pressure. And I think that it goes back to the experiences that I have had and probably rooted in just learning to be a pilot when I was a kid. I think back to even just some of my early flying days and um, when you're the only one up there and if something goes wrong, then you need to be able to stay cool (laughs) under pressure. And then the same thing when uh, I went to Africa and experienced some 
insecure airports that I would fly into and that could become life and death situations. So one airport that I flew into had been taken over by a rebel group that got through the airport perimeter. And that happened between the time that I was cleared to land and the time that I was taxiing off of the runway. So, you know, as soon as I got off of the runway and onto the ramp, uh, really seeing the situation at the airport and maintaining that cool and, you know, being able to think ahead and to exit a situation and then really learn from it. So, okay, does this mean we need to increase security protocol? What do we need to do for safety and documented procedures? And how can we make sure that no other pilot encounters the same type of unexpected the next time around? And how do we develop this for, you know, looking around corners into the future? And so really then making it more programmatic and a systemic answer to anything that I encountered and beginning that and doing that throughout my career and Africa and then each position of leadership along the way, you know, so maybe it's the part of me that just doesn't stop with the situation. But one of the things that's been um, helpful for me in my career is really taking that learning and applying it on a larger scale. So that's where that think big that I talk about comes in. And that does start, you know, growing up in Vancouver and I, and I wouldn't let anything or anyone limit my thinking. And I wanted to think big. And for me, that was going to university and becoming a pilot and thinking big. And even if some people that I encountered along the way, if there was discouragement there, it only made me more determined. And then even now, as I've come to Amazon, Amazon, we think the same way. And that's why they're such a successful organization. Thinking big is one of Amazon's leadership principles. And as Women leaders, I think we need to create and communicate a bold direction that inspires results. Uh, We add value because we add a diverse perspective and we need to take risks when necessary. And my current organization values the ability to look around corners and consider solutions to problems from a new perspective. So kind of, you know, taking that cool under pressure and then applying it to make an organization or the team better is part of that vision and leadership that I've been able to apply in both operations and safety. And I would say that for me, it comes, it comes naturally because I've had this lifetime practice of thinking big and, you know, that comes from even going then from a regional airline to the global entity. And now I have this global sandbox that I that I get to play in and apply those skills that I've acquired along the way on this global scale. And I think for me, the most rewarding piece of all of that has been, you know, building uh, a bar raising team. So it's so much fun to be able to have an opportunity to place key leaders in positions and then communicate a bold vision, inspire, engage the team, and then really watch the team function is, is pretty incredible. And it's always an honor to be able to do that. So I think, you know, I talk about these situations and some of these stories that are, you know, require that ability to, to stay calm under pressure, but really applying them to these different leadership roles has really been rewarding. It's very, very exciting to kind of hear again from you. And Amazon's a big company. So your ability to be able to lead there is a big deal. So, you know, one of the things that I think we asked you once before was around the idea that 
women don't necessarily see themselves as commercial pilots. And part of that is there just haven't been very many. And so I know you're not only champion and an advocate for women in STEM and, and women as pilots, but you know, throughout your journey, what has that looked like for you? I mean, it's been a relatively small percentage of other women that have been in a similar trajectory with their career, if I recall correctly. The statistics, um, at least in 2020, there's just a mere 5% of pilots are women. And that's for pilots that are in our airlines. And really of those, only about one and a half percent of all captains are female. And that's according to the International Society of Women Airline Pilots. And, you know, it's it's interesting because women have had an aviation history in our country. And, you know, for example, women pilots played a pivotal role in World War II, the Women Air Force Service Pilots. They're also named the WASPs and they ferried and tested military aircraft. And so how do we increase that number? And I think that it really comes down to, well, by the time the airlines need pilots, you know, who's the funnel? And it's those people that are flying, you know, flying some, you know, getting some hours, maybe if it's some some small cargo operation, or maybe it's right out of university. Well, who's at the university? And the numbers are very similar in the university, the aviation universities, in terms of male-female ratio of, of pilots. Okay, well, what about before that? Okay, well, at, you know, university or what about at high school? And 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 really, it goes all the way, you know, um, the statistics show to the fifth grade. And in the fifth grade, our young girls begin to lose interest in STEM. I have a fifth grader. So that is near and dear to my heart that I want to make sure that um, that love that she has of, of STEM doesn't go away. So how do I, as a parent, foster that? And how do I make that engaging and enriching and exciting and to help show that there's a career path? And not only for my own daughter, but for the daughters of, of our country. And how do we make sure that we're doing that in Vancouver or in Washington or on the West Coast? Uh, and how do we make sure that we're connecting the dots for our youth to a career that can be easily attainable for them. And I think it also does come to us, the burden of responsibility is on us as leaders. And that is to really ask ourselves, who are we taking the time to mentor and coach? And how are we thinking about ensuring that women have opportunity to jobs and leadership positions and then executive positions, which could ultimately lead to the C-suite, you know, positions. And um, I think that as women, we need to lift each other up and champion one another. And really, it's lifting our fellow women up on our shoulders in order to build upon the foundations that have already been set by those who have gone before us. And so I think that we need to recognize that each one of us, if you're in an executive level or not, us women are each a link in the 
unbroken chain of progress. And it's cool when I think of how we get to stand on the shoulders of giants that have come before us. And for aviation, I think of Amelia Earhart and Betty Green and Bessie Coleman. And then in order to lift up those who come after us. And this is, you know, one of the reasons why my own organization, I am the executive sponsor for an employee resource group, the Women at Air. And then at the same time, during COVID, I had the incredible opportunity to interview some Tuskegee Airmen. So those are the some of the first um, African-American pilots in our armed forces. And so I got to interview them. And those gentlemen showed me that not only did they face the most severe hardships, but they also excelled. And they were operationally excellent, and they had a positive, can-do attitude that's infectious even to this day. When I think about women in pilot positions and the numbers are so small, I do think about what part can I play and what burden of responsibility is on me to ensure that I am mentoring and coaching and helping that next generation. Oh, I'm so glad we have leaders like you. We can talk to you all day. (laughs) (laughs) I think we want to move into our rapid fire questions because while we could talk to you all day, we probably shouldn't talk to you all day. You probably have other things to do (laughs) Friday afternoon. (laughs) Um, And at the close of our interviews, we'd like to ask these quick questions. Just answer it. Whatever is the first thing that pops into your head. So the first one is, what are you doing to find joy in your life right now? I'm spending time with my husband and my kids. And a part of that is the fun. And so we live on a lake. And so I water ski almost every day. Fun. It is fun. (laughs) What's your favorite book or the most recent read? My favorite book that I have read recently is Grit by Angela Duckworth. And she talks about the power of passion and perseverance, which is ultimately grit uh, that makes for a truly remarkable leader. You definitely have grit. I see. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I take that as a huge compliment. <laughs> I'm sure you recognize, I hope you recognize yourself in that book. That's a wonderful book. What's one of your goals for 2021? Personal goal of mine is to read the Bible in a year. How are you doing? I'm on track. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a small goal. What do you tell Amelia, Kira, and Sahara about chasing their dreams? As I've talked about in terms of think big, I encourage each of my daughters to dream big, to think big. There is nothing we as women cannot do. There is nothing unattainable. There is no idea that is out of reach. They each need to have a relentless pursuit and tenacity to pursue their biggest idea. And as they grow, I encourage them to build a network of support of their own that will bring up, even after them, the next generation of women and after them, the one after that. And above all else, I want them to remember to balance all of that with their own passion for people. Amelia Earhart once said, there's more to life than being a passenger. Lacey has been anything but a passenger and we appreciate her sharing her insight on Trust Tree Talks. 
As we move forward with all the knowledge we gathered during this period of intense change and raised awareness, we hope you continue to tune in to hear women's stories of resilience. Do you know a woman whose story should be shared? Introduce us, reach out, we are listening. We're always looking for women we can promote, we can invite to our show, and we can feature in future anthologies. And here's our shameless self-promotion moment. Check us out at trusttreegroup.com and do a little shopping. Both our book and our candles are available through the site. Subscribe to the podcast and share the podcast with your friends. Connect us to the extraordinary women in your life who have stories they are ready to share. Sign up for our newsletter. Follow us on social media. I'm Lisa. And I'm Elizabeth. And together we are Trust Tree.